I invite you now to take your Bibles as we open God's Word and we uh, uh, continue in uh, the book of Genesis and come to the last part of the, uh, the story of, um, of Joseph. Uh, last time we looked at chapter 47, no, 48 um, and 49 is not so much about Joseph directly, it's about Jacob blessing uh, the sons of, um, of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim in chapter 48 and in chapter 49 when Jacob comes to the end of his life he is blessing all his uh, his sons and then we continue to read we start reading uh, in Genesis 49 verse 29 and we read till 50 verse 26 is the end of the chapter uh, Genesis 49 verse 29 So after he has given all the twelve uh, uh, sons uh, his blessing, verse 29, Then he, that is Jacob, charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought, with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for the burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is, that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such other days required for those who were embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days days. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave. I am dying. In my grave is a dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, 
which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre with Abram Bar with the field of Ephron the Hittite. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all went with him up to bury his father. And in verse 15 uh, starts the text for the preaching. And that is into verse 21. 15, 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us, and he may actually repay us for all the evil which he did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, before your father died, he commanded, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And he said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now therefore do not be afraid, I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's the end of the text for the preaching. We continue reading till the end of the chapter. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Thus far, God's word. The immediate response to the preaching of the gospel will sing Psalm 36, the second stanza. Psalm 36, verse 2. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sin can have nasty consequences in your life. You've done something that was wrong, that was hurtful, but you were sorry, you're very sorry, and you have confessed your sin, your guilt, you've asked for forgiveness. And you have been forgiven by the person or the people you have hurt. You've also asked God to forgive you. And yet, sometimes you feel that it's, it's not completely gone. And it bothers you. Deep down, you still struggle with what you've done. 
and, and you're afraid that people cannot get over it and that they are still affected by what has happened. What about your relationship with God? Do you really believe He has forgiven you? Mind you, we don't always make it easy for each other either, right? For instance, when I ask you to forgive me if I've done something, but I don't really show that I'm sorry. Or when I say that I forgive you, but I don't really trust that you are sorry. And if I get a chance, I may still try to get even. And Satan, cunning as he is, is always ready to make use of those thoughts and feelings. You know, Satan loves to make you look at each other with suspicion. And he loves to use that to eventually destroy your relationships. Satan, Satan will say things like, sure, people say they forgive you, but do you really believe that? Don't fool yourself. You have caused so much hurt. What makes you think that they will trust you, they accept you again? Oh, they may pretend they do, but do you really think you get away with that? Watch out. One day, the one you have mistreated will stab you in the back. Don't trust them. And don't expect that it will ever be good again between you and him. This is how Satan is at work in our text. Life continues for Jacob's family. After the remaining years of the famine are over, they stay where they are in Egypt, in the area of Goshen. They don't move back to the Promised Land. And, and you know, they're doing well. They're doing really well. In chapter 47, verse 27, it says, They gained possessions. They were fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They were a growing group of people. But Satan does not give up. As long as Satan is around, the future of God's salvation in Jesus Christ is still under attack. And that's the message. The future of God's salvation continues to be under attack. What do we see in our text? We see rekindled fear. We also see renewed trust. And we recognize unchanged faithfulness. The three aspects you come across in these verses. The future of God's salvation continues to be under attack. We see rekindled fear, renewed trust, unchanged faithfulness. Congregation, 17 years after the family arrived in Egypt, Jacob dies. And shortly before that, he let them know that Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, must be reckoned and treated as his own sons. That's why you find later on throughout the Bible, Ephraim and Manasseh as part of the 12 tribes. And the old patriarch makes them share in the same blessings as their uncles. That's in chapter 48. And then on his deathbed, he blesses all his sons. Very personal blessings, particularly fitting for each one of them. That's in chapter 49. 
And at the same time, he makes also his funeral arrangements. He doesn't want to be buried in Egypt, but he instructs his sons to bury him in Canaan, in a family grave, a cave, the field of Machpelah, in the southern part of, uh, of Canaan. Now, in Jacob's final words, we hear a dramatic summary of the history of God's people thus far. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. They buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And I buried Leah. Do you remember from last week how, how Jacob spoke to Pharaoh about pilgrimage? Well, the only piece of real estate that they ever had in the promised land was a grave. That's all. That's where the pilgrimage of Abraham ended. That's where the pilgrimage of Isaac ended. And that's where the pilgrimage of Jacob is ending. At a cemetery. Isn't that discouraging? It hasn't changed much, has it? I mean, the old patriarchs had, 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 had beautiful promises. And so do we. But nothing seems to change. The one generation dies... And then there is a new generation, and it takes a few decades, and that generation is gone too. And on and on it goes. How frustrating is that? We are looking forward to God, to God answering our questions. We, we want God to fix our problems, straighten things out in our lives and in this world. And we have many beautiful promises about that. And what about Jesus' return to take care of all these things? But we are waiting and waiting and waiting, and then we die. In our situations and our circumstances, we must learn to look beyond the grave for a fulfillment of God's promises, at least up to this time. And remember that God is faithful, and so does Jacob. He trusts that one day, and it will take four centuries, that one day the pilgrims will come home in Israel. And that the future of God's covenant is not uncertain, even if it takes centuries, because the God of the covenant is true to his word. And so the Hebrew shepherd is buried according to his wishes. Although it actually turned into a very impressive Egyptian state funeral complete with long times, a few months of mourning, and, and a large military escort all the way to Canaan. But then when all this is passed and things are getting back to normal, something is changing. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, when it's all over, when they come home after all the business, the funeral ceremonies, reality sinks in. And that's not so strange. Right? It takes a while to realize the impact of the death of a loved one. Now, at that time, Joseph's brothers must, must have been in their 70s. But they feel that Jacob's death has created a new situation. They could have major consequences. And suddenly fear and distrust is popping up in the family. That's how it goes sometimes. And even that you can imagine. Right? There can be old grievances of issues among siblings. But, but an old father or mother can keep the family together. I mean, 
even if you don't always agree and you have trouble as siblings, you're not going to rock the boat as long as mom and dad are still around. But then when the person has passed on, the hidden family feuds can flare up, and then siblings fight and argue. This is the threat in Jacob's family. Joseph's brothers think back what they have done so many years ago. By that time, 40 years ago or more. And they fear the consequences. They say to each other, you never know. Joseph may still hold a grudge against us. Perhaps this is the moment he has been waiting for all those years to pay us back. Well, Joseph had told them repeatedly that he was not angry and that he had forgiven them since. He didn't seem to bear any grudges during the past 17 years after the family came. And yet, it is possible that he restrained himself out of respect for his dad, who loved him so much. Now his time has come. He may want to get even. And you wonder why they think that way. Right? When you read the story, where does this come from, this fear? It cannot come from things that have happened in the last years. Right from the day they found out that the Egyptian governor was their brother Joseph, they've got to know him as a gracious man, a man of peace and forgiveness. So why would they be afraid that Joseph's attitude would change now? What makes them think that he has faked it all those years? You remember chapter 45, a few Sundays ago? After the dramatic moment when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, he reaches out to them with so much love and so much compassion. How could that not lead to True forgiveness and reconciliation. And the problem is that, that deep down, these men are still not at peace with God and with themselves. They don't really trust God's forgiving grace. And therefore, they find it hard to believe that about Joseph. That's why their fear, their lack of trust, says more about them than about Joseph. It reveals their own lack of, of love and, and lack of inner peace. As the Apostle John wrote, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear is to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. That's true. But, but we need to dig a bit deeper here. Satan is attacking the restored unity of God's covenant people. Satan is feeding the fear and the distrust. And by doing so, he is trying to, 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 to frustrate the work of God. I mean, when you don't trust each other, right? When you're suspicious of each other's motivations or each other's intentions, there's no unity. There's no harmony. That's how it works between individuals, between groups, between people in the church. When a husband does not trust his wife or the other way around, and, 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 and you harbor those feelings, it will unavoidably threaten the harmony in their marriage. And if it is not dealt with, it will eventually destroy the relationship. It works the same in the church. This is how Satan will always try to sabotage the future of God's work. 
We can have different views and different opinions on a variety of topics. But if there is no mutual trust, if we live in fear for each other or disregard for each other, if we show a negative and suspicious attitude towards each other, we will harm the work of Jesus Christ. We will harm the coming of His kingdom. And the only way to get rid of your suspicion and your lack of trust or fear is to live in a reconciled relationship with God. To live out of the forgiving grace of God in Jesus Christ. So, and, and, you know, we must learn that over and over again. Only the power of God's grace will give your conscience peace and trust. Only that grace will prevent Satan from using our differences to get a foothold in the church. Well, despite the experiences of the last 17 years, Joseph's brothers are not there yet. And they're not going to take chances. You never know. Joseph might strike any time. So what's the best way to beat him? How can they move his heart to compassion, forgiveness? Well, at first, they don't even dare to approach him personally. He might arrest them on the spot. But they do know he was very close to their father Jacob. And so they sent Joseph this message. It's a remarkable message. They claim that their father, actually they say your father to Joseph, to make it even more touching, that he had instructed them before he died to ask Joseph to forgive the sins of his brothers. All right, that sounds very loving and very caring. But it, the problem is it does not sound very credible. Of course, no one can prove whether or not Jacob has ever said this to his sons. But the story doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Think of it. If this would have been such a major concern for the old patriarch Jacob, why would he not have urged Joseph personally, before he died, to be nice to his brothers? Why would he have stopped Jacob from doing that? Now, the whole thing sounds really fishy. They most likely made it up. They make it sound even better by talking about themselves as servants of the God of your father. Servants of the God of your father. Please don't forget, that's what they want to say, we all serve the same God who was worshipped and feared by our father Jacob. The memory of this faithful God who made everything work out so well for you and for all of us should that not soften Joseph's heart to be merciful and forgiving? And then the brothers show up in person. Now, it says then, they fell down before him. Remember Joseph's dreams? This was the third time that they fell down before him. But this is different, because the previous times, they bowed down without knowing that the man in front of them was Joseph. But now they know. And they bow down 
intentionally before their own brother, and they offered themselves to their own brother as his slaves. It must have crossed their minds what I had said to him earlier in 37 verse 8. 37 verse 8, where they say, after Joseph tells us his dreams, and his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And here they are. Yes, they are afraid of Joseph. But in fact, they are still dealing with their own guilt. They have not accepted Joseph's forgiveness because they don't trust the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. This, this rekindles fear. It rekindles suspicion. And it will threaten the harmony and the unity of mutual trust. If you feel this way towards your brothers and sisters in the church, it will threaten and will eventually destroy mutual trust and love in the church. And Satan loves to see it happen. For Satan likes nothing better than, than frustrating the progress of the work of God. When Joseph gets the message of his brothers, he is devastated. It really bothers him to be confronted with so much distrust, to experience this suspicion from his brothers. All that he wants, all that he ever wanted, is to live with them in love and peace and harmony. He had never said or even suggested anything else. How come they still don't believe him? It says in verse 17, Joseph wept when he got their message. And, and that shows already that it never crossed his mind even to take revenge on them. Nothing like that. And there are scholars who explain Joseph's weeping as shedding tears of joy when he finally saw his brother's humble attitude and deep sense of guilt. But that would be really odd. If Joseph was looking for a humble attitude to his brothers, why would he have been waiting 17 years without saying anything about it? When we looked at chapter 45, we didn't get the impression that things needed to be straightened out still. At least Joseph was not looking for it. No, he breaks out in tears. Because he is saddened, he's disappointed, so much fear, so much suspicion among God's people after all those years, it really hurts him big time. By saying these things, they do their brother gross injustice. He had treated them all those years in a way that made it so clear. There were no hard feelings in his heart. He didn't hold a grudge against them, not at all. Many years ago, we had told them already, everything is okay. Don't be angry with yourself. By the grace of God, our reconciliation is real. It's a fact. Joseph had forgiven how his brothers had treated him. Again, I mentioned it before. If you go back to chapter 45, verse 1 to 15, when he makes himself known to his brothers, you will find there that more than once, Joseph assured them not to be afraid, not to be distressed, not to worry. Their sins have been forgiven. And, and at that time already, he also stressed, three times he says it, 
how the Lord has used the fact that he was sold as a slave for the good, for the benefit, for the salvation of people. So what can Joseph do? Well, all that he can do now is urging them again to trust him. Reassuring them again of his reliability, his genuine love. Do, be, do not be afraid, he says. Trust me, because I'm your brother, and I fear the Lord. I don't want to take revenge. I've never even thought of it. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, the Lord says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. So Joseph says to his brothers, Who do you think I am? Am I in the place of God? Do you really think that I would act as if I know better than our God? The Almighty and Holy One who works out His plan in our lives? As a matter of fact, all this is not even about me anyway. There is more at stake. It's all about the Lord. It's all about the progress. It's all about the future of His work, His saving grace. And together, we must trust Him and trust His promises. I've told you before, He has sent me to Egypt ahead of you to take care of you and your families. If I would focus on my own vindication, I would resist His salvation. Somehow Joseph's brothers have lost sight of what's going on. That it was God who had given Joseph this position in Egypt with the purpose to serve God's plan, to save God's people. And that it was God Himself who had reconciled them by granting forgiveness. Don't be afraid of me, but renew your trust in me, says Joseph. Don't let Satan frustrate the future of God's people. Trust and believe that everything in your whole life is guided by the hand of God. That will put an end to your fear. That will take away your distrust. And Joseph is then going to reinforce this one more time. He points at what has been from the beginning, the very heart of everything that had happened in the whole history of his life. You meant evil against me, he says. I mean, even after their sins have been forgiven, there is no reason to deny the evil intentions of the brothers. But, he continues, you meant evil against me, but God, that's interesting, you find that that combination of words so often also in the New Testament. You this, but God. God meant it for good. God has used your evil so that it would have good consequences, beneficial consequences. What you were doing when you sold me, he used it for his purpose. Who can thwart the plans of God? That's how powerful, how glorious our God is. To get done the things he has in mind, he makes use of human tools, so to speak. Even if those human tools don't realize it, or don't even want it. It's hard for you and me to wrap your head around. We've seen it before, at other moments in the Joseph narrative. And now at the end it comes back, it comes back in full force. God wants to impress it on all of us. Whatever people do, He controls it for his own purpose, for his own plan. It's true. Despite the fact that God uses them for good, the evil schemes of people are still evil. However, God's own perfect holiness is not defiled when he makes use of human sin. 
God's hidden providence was at work when Joseph was sold. But God cannot be blamed for the crime. So no matter what, no matter what, nothing happens beyond the will of God. He controls your and my plans, brothers and sisters. By the grace of God, He directs our actions for the results that He has in mind. That's not an excuse for a careless life, not an excuse for a sinful life. Don't try to explain what is inexplicable, basically, but recognize the comfort, the tremendous comfort. Isn't that wonderful? What do you see when you look around in the world? What do you see when you watch the evening news? And, 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 and what do you find out when you follow politically correct news feeds on social media? Sin and evil seem to run the show in this world. Godless people seem to be in control everywhere. And in the meantime, there's no end to the suffering in this world, to the oppression in this world. How depressing is that? But here we learn. Here we learn. Let them go ahead. Let them go ahead. Those wicked and godless powers in this world. Let them be as busy as they want. Let them make a lot of noise. Let them be so active and activist as they feel like. Let them stir up the whole world. It's not going to help them. Here's the good news. For a long time it may look like they will be successful. But in the end, they will not get what they strive for. On the contrary, they are serving and promoting your salvation. The salvation of God's children. The promising future of God's church. The coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Whether they like it or not. The crime of Joseph's brothers serve to save many people, Joseph says. In Egypt, Jacob's family would become a great nation, prepared to inherit the land of God's promises. They would, turn, they would in turn lead to, to, to the saving of many more lives through the Savior, Jesus Christ. He fulfills the promise of God to Abraham that through you all the peoples on earth will be blessed. And so the salvation of many lives continues. The salvation of many lives continues today in the ongoing gathering of the church of Jesus Christ till the great multitude that no one can count. Well, what else could Joseph do than emphasize again what he has said before? Don't be afraid. Verse 21. Don't be afraid. Let's recognize that the future of God's promise, salvation, is at stake. And therefore, let's continue, he says to his brothers, in the same spirit of mutual trust as we did in the past 17 years. And let's do so with hope and good courage. And Joseph can say that because he knows the future is not based on the good intentions of my brothers. The future is not based and does not depend on my own positive feelings and good intentions either. It's only based on God's unchanged faithfulness. And this has been the central message of the whole history of Joseph all along at which we have looked at different times in the past few months. 
And this is the central message for us today. As the Lord God unfolds His plans, everything will serve to reach His divine goals. The first coming of Jesus Christ, and then the second coming of the Savior Jesus Christ, and nothing and no one can stop Him. The history of Joseph's life teaches us, brothers and sisters, that God is trustworthy, that God is faithful, that God is entitled to all your honor and your love and obedience. Even if dark clouds of fear and suspicion threaten your trust in the future of his salvation. It's true. Satan will continue his efforts to obstruct the future of God's work. And each one of us will experience that in different ways, in different situations in your life. And often the efforts of Satan appear to be successful. Actually, they appear so successful that it seems ridiculous to hope and trust that the covenant of God makes sense and that everything will turn out okay. But don't let yourself be fooled. God is faithful. He will make sure that His promises will come true, that His work will continue. Always. His work in our personal lives, His work in the church, His work throughout the world. Listen to Joseph one more time. The famine is long over, but his whole life is still dedicated to God's purpose. The salvation of his covenant people. And so he renews this commitment. I will provide for you and your little ones, he says. He shows God's never-changing grace and faithfulness. Generation after generation may share in the blessings of God's covenant. And then it says, so he comforted them. He reassured them. That's what it means. He spoke kindly to them. Satan had tried again to create a new rift of fear and mistrust between Joseph and his brothers, but it was nipped in the bud. The sins of the past have been forgiven. And now Israel's history in Egypt can continue to save many lives. So that also in the future, all who believe the promise of the gospel should live as one before the Lord, the God of the covenant. Jacob has passed away. So will Joseph many years later. And for a long time, the voice of God will be silent in Egypt. Centuries later, the Israelites will find themselves in slavery and cruel oppression. Egypt's hospitality turns into terrible slavery. But the covenant of God remains because God's faithfulness will never change. He governs the world. He governs all the nations. In mercy, He will fulfill His word. One day, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, true life will rise again in freedom from Egypt, from the house of slavery. And filled with new courage and new hope, Israel will take the road of pilgrimage towards the land of God's promises. And through your salvation in Jesus Christ and by the power of the same Holy Spirit, you may rise. You may rise in freedom from the slavery of sin. You may also travel full of hope and continue your pilgrimage. A hope and a courage that is rooted in God's faithfulness on your way towards the promised land. The inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. And then... On the great day of your Savior's return, your hope will be fulfilled. 
then you may enter the perfect rest and joy for all God's people, and fear and suspicion will be swallowed up in perfect harmony. Today, the future of God's salvation will continue to be under attack. So be alert. Be alert. But trust your God. The God of the covenant will fulfill His promises. Believe that He is a God of mercy and forgiveness, and trust that His plans will succeed. Believe that His work will be completed and that He will draw all His people together in the unity of true faith. Believe and trust and carry on, carry on in firm hope. Move forward in faith. Hold on to God's eternal love and grace. Hold on to the unchanged faithfulness in Jesus Christ. Yes, the days can be dark and at times can be frightening, but the future belongs to the Lord. Amen.